0: Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the book of Acts, and this morning, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We will take verses 1 through 13. But before I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, I should um, mention that I know many of you have studied Bibles and you listen to other sermons. I don't know why, but you, you do anyway. You may have gone through other studies in the book of Acts. Don't look for me to agree with others in the book of Acts. Um, I I first have to agree with me before I'm going to agree with somebody else. And I love uh, the old school Calvary Chapel understanding of the gifts of the Spirit and this book of Acts. So don't be offended if, if you, you know, it's tough to be wrong. And, and just, you know, man up and take it and change sides. Anyway, I say that lovingly. There are a lot of great Bible commentators, my teachers uh, in, in books that um, I don't agree with on certain areas. And uh, that's how it is. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? <clears throat> Beginning at verse 2, we'll take it all the way to verse 13. And began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. Please be seated. I mean, is the energy that belongs to how Luke has recorded this, that all of these people from all over the world are here for this moment. This really is the birth of the church not Christianity, but the Church. Uh, this is uh, this has changed what we would say today a game-changer. This morning's message is simply entitled Pentecost. Uh, everything that I've been commenting on since chapter 1 has been with this moment in mind. It has been leading up, uh, building up to this climactic milestone in the Church, in Christianity. And uh, it, the preparation that Jesus had laid on these men, uh, repeating to them, the Spirit is going to come, wait in Jerusalem, you will be endured, endured with power. It's, um, uh, again, a climactic moment. You, when I do a wedding, I say to the bride and the groom as they stand before me, before we start the, the vows and the promises, I say the moment that you have been waiting for with great anticipation is here. Because they've been building up to it. You know, shopping, clothes, all the stuff that goes in that, worrying. And now it's here. And this is sort of uh, like what's going on with the bride of Christ. This is it. The moment is here. And look at with me, if you would, at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now Luke is going to add energy to that when he says suddenly uh, the, holy, the, the, the great wind came. Uh, if you don't see the importance of what is taking place here, uh, just try to remember that until this event took place, there was no preaching to lost souls. They were just amongst themselves praying and, and, and studying the Word. But there was nothing flowing out of the church, out of Christianity. It was just stagnant in that sense. But after this, it's going to change immediately. After the, that, whoever it was that made that little snide remark, oh, they're drunk, Peter's going to say, I'll have none of that. And he, he's going to lovingly uh, begin to explain to them just what is going on. And so don't, for one moment, if you have, missed the importance and the power behind these events that are still going on. Maybe not as dramatic, but you show me a Christian who's not ready and eager to preach Christ, and, and I'll show you, I'm supposed to say something, like, and I'll show you, I don't know, a duck, uh, I'll show you a Christian that is 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 not uh, does not have the Spirit flowing out of them, and something is wrong. It is very wrong. I mean, Christians preach on their deathbeds. So, back to verse one: When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Well, Pentecost is the Feast of first fruits, the harvest. And I don't want to get too bogged down in this, though I probably will a little bit anyway, because you can go nuts trying to figure out the Old Testament rites and ordinances and how they apply. The symbolisms aren't too hard, but to to be strict with them, even the Jews struggle to this day, trying to figure out uh, things about the the Mosaic offerings. Uh, The first day uh, of the Feast of Fruits... Uh, That uh, was the barley offering. Fifty days later, the Jews would then offer wheat. And that was the end of this Pentecost, this uh, uh, harvest celebration. Only the first and last days were celebrated at the temple uh, with a 50-day gap. And the word Pentecost means 50, speaking about these 50 days. Now, it is about 9 in the morning right now when this is taking place. And when Luke writes that the day of Pentecost had fully come, what he is saying is it's now daylight. Well, the Jews started their day at sundown. So Pentecost really came uh, Saturday at sundown, started that next day. But the offerings would not be given until Sunday morning. The morning offerings would, would be the daily offerings plus the offerings that belong to this feast And this is what Luke is saying. It's fully here now. We're not at Saturday night. It's Sunday morning. Uh, The sacrifices that belong to all of the Jewish sacrifices spoke of the Messiah to come, our Christ. They anticipated him. And we have a fuller understanding of these things, thanks to our New Testament, and uh, the, the the apostles and the writers have have given to us so much information in such a short amount of space compared to the Old Testament. Now, Passover spoke of His voluntary sacrifice of Christ, saying, "You know what? I'll be born." Which of who who here would like to be born all over again? Not I. Didn't say born again. <laughs> Because we want to be born from above, but uh, who would who would go to heaven and say, "I like a, to redo that"? I don't. I don't. You know. I don't think anybody would say, "I'll, I'll have another, thank you." Uh, but Christ volunteered to come here, our sacrificial lamb. First Corinthians five, Paul says, "For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us." That's how we learn about these symbols and the emblems which are which are critical for us. But the first fruits, this this Pentecost, this feast, it didn't speak of his death. It speaks of his resurrection and the victory and the life of his sacrifice that comes out of the Passover. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 23. Christ the first fruits. Well, that's the name of this feast. The Jews knew it as the feast of harvest or the of first fruits. And they'd offer that first fruit. That would be barley. Fifty days later, they'd offer the the wheat. And that would be uh, the 50th day uh, ending this, this celebration. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. Christ, the first fruits afterward. Those who are Christ at his coming. And again, this speaks of the resurrection and the work that followed the resurrection. Now, we're in May or June. That's when this feast would take place. There took two competing views by the religious leaders. Remember, you have the law of God from Moses and the prophets. And then you have rabbinical Judaism, which sort of took a blanket and threw it over the candle, or just just ruined everything. Uh, the the minutiae, the laws they tacked and the burdens, uh, really, uh, to this day, it is just convoluted. Uh, what the the Old Testament uh, preaches, no wonder they have they struggle to get to the New Testament. But anyway, in those days, in the days that these apostles are experiencing this coming of the Spirit, the two competing views concerning this holiday—one by the Sadducees, a group of religious leaders—and they really ran Jerusalem and the temple at this time, and then the Pharisees, another group. And they really, the people were more with the Pharisees than they were with the Sadducees. But uh, the Sadducees counted 50 days from the weekly Sabbath after Passover. So if Passover fell on a Monday, they'd wait till Saturday, and then they'd start their count, the barley offering of the first fruits, and then uh, 50 days later, the Pentecost with the wheat offering. The Sadducees, they counted it from Passover. So you had two different, you know, so at what point? And that's what I mentioned, that even the Jews struggle with understanding uh, the details to many of these rites. Uh, This Passover happens to be on a Saturday, whichever view you take. The calendar worked out that way. And Pentecost, of course, on a Sunday also, and this is why we, Christians, have as our primary day of assembly on a Sunday, the first day of the week. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got to give it 20 minutes so when they make this ready for radio, they'll have a pause. Okay, that's 20 minutes. Anyway, back to this. The um, uh, We also celebrate... Uh, Gather on Sunday, not only because Christ rose on a Sunday, but incidentally, as a bonus, a bumper crop, it, we have the, pas- the Passover. The giving of the Holy Spirit occurred on a Saturday also. And, and Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 is one place where we read about the church gathering. And again, in, in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, where we are told a, we assemble on a Sunday. Well, it says they were all. Well, who's they? When he here in verse 1, they were all with one accord here. Well, remember, no chapter divisions were given in the Bible. The closest that uh, come from the original documents would have been the Psalms. You have separate Psalms, they're not chapters, they're entire Psalms. But the chapter divisions came later. So when Luke wrote this letter slash, Uh, thesis to Theophilus, there were no breaks. So you would move right from chapter 1, verse 26, into what we call chapter 2, verse 1. So let's read it together, because the antecedent is critical. Who's the last people that Luke is talking about when he then resumes, comes back with the pronouns? Verse 26 of chapter 1 in Acts, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. And I I believe strongly that uh, this is the twelve apostles now, and Matthias being added to that number. And not only because of the antecedent in verse twenty six, but also verse thirty seven, when uh, the apostles are mentioned and addressed, they're singled out. No one else is mentioned, uh, making a strong case for it being only the 12. Now, if you say, but no, I want there to be other people there too. Well, that's where you can have that opinion. It's not going to, you're not going to, you know, end up in Okinawa with your head shaved or anything like that. It's okay. So, uh, events in Acts chapter 1, Uh, pardon me, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 41. That's not the entire chapter. But those events were led and experienced first by the apostles. Uh, They are the ones that opened the door. It says here, with one accord. Well, unity and assembly a pronounced characteristic with the first Christians. Uh, Without trying, without even referencing, probably, Amos 3... Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Here they are, walking together, and they are agreed. Uh, And they are in one place. They are assembled. And uh, we have good reason to believe that this was not in the upper room. See those little things that can irritate somebody. Well, I think it was more than just the 12 apostles. I think it was up in the upper room. Well, you're wrong again. So, uh, just kidding, but... Uh, Of course, when you go to hear a pastor speak, you're going to get his beliefs. Hopefully, he's not conforming unless you really got some ammo on you. Uh, But anyway, in one place, well, we saw them in the upper room in chapter 1 in verse 4 and again in verse 13. It could have been different upper rooms. We have no reason to think there was only one upper room available to be rented out or borrowed. But I pointed this out last session, Luke 24, verse 52. Luke adds this, summing up what was going on with the apostles after Christ had risen and showed himself to them. But before Pentecost, and before, it says, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That is after his, his ascension. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So we're not surprised to find them in the temple. Now, we'll get to why maybe some folks confuse this, just simply for the, a, a word translated house, and we'll, we'll cover that. But in Jerusalem, um, really only the temple and around the temple could accommodate the multitudes, not only that are going to be baptized, but who are gathering. There really was no open courtyard. There were courtyards and homes, but not enough to carry a whole 3,000 men So this is, uh, you you know, just using sense here and have no reason why not to. The ritual cleansing pools of the Jews, uh, they were all over Jerusalem. Archaeologists are still finding them in Jerusalem. And they're essentially these little pools. You know, the rabbis laying on the people. When you come to Jerusalem, you're going to have to go through, you know, ritual cleansing, wash yourself. And so they had these pools all over the place. This is Pentecost. Feast of fruits required all male, all men of the Jews to come to Jerusalem. That's why Luke is laying out, you know, Parthenians, Elamites, all these other folks are coming in. So there's multitudes of people that are here. And you, you can't just have a sink and, and expect people to wash up there. So they've, they've got these pools all over the place called mikvahs. One of the largest ones was 220 found, one of the largest ones found on the, by the temple, on the temple grounds, or close to. It was 225 feet wide. I mean, that's, that's just the width, with three, three uh, steps or, or sections to exit and enter the pool. And it would be difficult, if not far-fetched, to say that, well, they were in an upper room, and 3,000 people heard them speaking in tongues or heard the wind come and then the tongues and then they were, Peter preached to them and they could hear Peter preach to them and they gave their lives to Christ Then they were all baptized. Well, this isn't happening in some narrow street in Jerusalem. The only place that can really accommodate them is the temple ground, uh, not the narrow streets, uh, again, of, of the city. Uh, so this is, these are reasons why. Uh, I have these beliefs, not just because I want to disagree with others who do think they were in an upper room. Um, And and it just, it's impossible to be. Anyway, verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. He should have put mighty in front of rushing. But anyway... Clearly, something outside of human influence is going on. That's the point that Luke is making. Remember, he's making points. He's done his research. And as he's writing this, he's thinking, as any writer would do. And he wants to be clear about the events. He wants them to be accurate. And he wants to capture the moment. And so when you read this, the uh, the, the story narrated from the verses It's kind of drawn out, but the experience was was taking place quite rapidly. The wind came, the the spirit filled the house, uh, uh, the dwelling place where they were, the the manifestation of tongues and fire. I mean, all of this is happening, and the crowd's converging on, and then, you know, the the sermon that comes. And so this is, uh, the things are, are moving at a rapid pace here. But God the Holy Spirit's grand entrance... To birth the church was sudden. I mean, they knew something was going to happen, the, the apostles. They had the promise, but they weren't expecting this. Not like, not like this. <clears throat> they knew to wait at the temple, to wait in Jerusalem. It says, as of a rushing mighty wind, and not a destructive wind, incidentally. When God appeared to Moses in the bush that burned, the bush was not consumed. God is not into destroying his people. He really doesn't want to destroy anyone. That's why he's so long-suffering. Jesus said this to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, of course, if you've got a weather vane, you could probably figure it out, but just in general. The Lord is saying, when you, you know when the wind comes, where is it coming from? Really, where is it coming from? It's not a guy with a machine down the hallway just pumping out the wind. And that to the, sort of is consistent with what is happening here. He says, where they were sitting, well, they were hanging out together, uh, the, the apostles. They were gathered together, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Uh, this is divine saturation. Now, one of my Bible teachers, Alan Redpath... Through mostly books, he said, um, "To be saturated with the word of to to be saturated with the word of God is to be filled with the presence of God." Well, I've saturated my myself with the word of God over the decades, and there's just been times where I did not feel that I was filled with God, but I was. You don't have to feel it; uh, it just has to be there. Uh, that is critical, and and you can to prove this, you can be in the most sour mood nearly in the flesh, and an opportunity to share Christ pops up in front of you, and you go right at it. You see, you didn't. You're walking, you say, I don't feel like, it. I don't feel righteous, I don't feel that, I feel actually, actually, I'm a little irritated with God right now. And you come across somebody, and God opens the door, and you get the, the chance to share, and you start just pouring out the gospel. It is magnificent. Anyway, it filled the present, uh, it filled the room with the presence. It filled the people. Now the use of the word house here is not a residence, as I feel I have established. Verse uh, chapter seven, verse forty-seven, we read. But Solomon built him a house. The same Greek word. Well, what house did Solomon build? Well, the temple. It's, it's just it's not uh, complicated. Uh, it's it's it, which house? Is it a house or is it an upper room? Which one is it? Well, it's neither. It's there at the temple. And there were canopied places. They were to shield from the sun and and the the elements. And uh, the the portico of Solomon would have been perfect for this kind of a thing. Little gazebos here and there. You go to a conference center and they have these little niches where you can kind of go and meditate. And the temple had these kinds of things. Well, verse 3, then, pardon me, Herod's temple had these kinds of things. Not the temple of Moses, uh, the tabernacle of Moses. Verse 3. Then there appeared to them, divided tongues, as a fire. And one sat upon each of them. There appeared to them, divided tongues. Serious symbolism going on here. This isn't random. This isn't, well, you know, why tongues? I mean, I've always not liked that. It's like, I would rather... I don't know fists. Uh, I don't know It's kind of the. I don't know any but tongues. It's just egg. But but it is important. It is I wouldn't change it. No, That's not what I'm saying. Entirely emblematic and educational. It is deliberate. It is God's deliberate choice. Uh, certainly not literal fire. Uh, that would be destructive also. But the tongue of fire. That is the human instrument. And, of course, the uh, tongue, because of the fire, the emblem of the Holy Spirit, is supercharged. The tongue is supercharged. Now, you tell me, what does anointing mean, then? Well, to be anointed, I mean, they're different. They're anointed to preach, anointed to share, uh, anointed to write. Uh, it's inspiration. The tongue is human, but the fire, the inspiration, is divine. And here we see, in union with God, for a specific purpose, these two have come together. These two emblems. The mouth of people and the power of God. You shall be endured with power. And this is precisely what he is talking about. For the specific purpose... Of witnessing, of declaring, of reasoning, of exhorting, of persuading, of giving influence—more than just the life—it's not enough to live a righteous life. You have to have the message. I mean, you get people connected to anything without the message. Second Corinthians chapter five. Yeah, I love this. Second Corinthians, it's such a—you know—it's such a heartfelt letter. Uh, you know, in First Corinthians, Paul's doing business. The first nine chapters, he spends cleaning up. As poor, poor Paul, you know, you just want to hug him, when you probably no, I'm sorry you had to do that. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ, not diplomats, ambassadors. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, the tongue is producing this, and that tongue is anointed. <clears throat> the human word human speech, the divine power, the author and finisher of our faith. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. How do you do that? Through preaching the word of God. Through telling the truth about God and the truth about men. It's a very simple message. Man is all messed up, God is not. And then we just fill in the blanks. And uh, that's witnessing. When you go to witness to people, you don't say, you know, things like, um, eschatologically speaking, I find that. I mean, who, they don't know that. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear fact and truth come flowing out of somebody that has seen something that was there. No mention, incidentally, because we're, we're on tongues and we're not. the Tongues that were given to the church are not identical to what's going on here. But I, I will make little comments on this as we move on. When Paul the Apostle was converted and um, Ananias went to say, Paul, your sins are forgiven, the scales came off his eyes, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told. There's no mention of him speaking in tongues. You can read that in Acts chapter 9. It's in other places too in Acts. We'll get to it three times going through Acts because that conversion is so powerful. A work of God, not a work of Paul. When Paul prayed for the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, he wanted them to be filled. He wanted them to be righteous. He itemized these virtues, but he omitted tongues as though it weren't that important. And again, you know, it is that, look, I'm Pentecostal in the sense that I believe in the day of Pentecost. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I am not Pentecostal, as you might uh, find, uh, denominationally speaking. I disagree with much of what comes out of Pentecostalism, and we're going to get that as we go through Acts. We're going to get some of it in a little bit. But uh, when Paul was encouraging them, it would have been odd to leave out speaking in tongues if that was an essential sign of being filled with the Spirit when he's talking about being filled with the Spirit. So, uh, I'll come back. I'll give it to you in doses because you just can't take one shot. you got to get three and then boosters. (laughs) It's a joke. It's funny. (laughs) How come we don't... What do we have closest to Olay? Oil of Olay? (laughs) All right. as a fire, well, flames. I mean, there are degrees of fire, a conflagration. You know, of a, of a flame of fire, a, a little flame, a pilot. You know, like on a gas furnace, there's a little pilot there. so cute. And uh, but then there's a flame, and this is what uh, they're seeing. These flaming tongues. There go. They were divided. This is. You know, it's not just this one little thing. It's, it's moving here. It's a metaphor. Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus speaking, I came to send fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. He's pulling at the leash, you could say, chomping at the bit. You know, he wants to get the church in motion. He's got to go through the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension, and then Pentecost. Divided tongues, plural. Fire, singular. Multiple tongues from one God. That's the idea. It's one source. There are, there are not many ways to heaven, for example. There's one way. All roads lead to Rome, but not all of them lead to heaven. There's only one to heaven, and that is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Like it or not, take it or leave it, fact, Jack, that's how it is. Well, when we look at the book of Kings, we're talking about fire right now. And there, uh, Elijah has this duel with the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. And Elijah says to them, you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. This ought to settle it. You would think that when they saw this happen on Mount Carmel, they would have converted and their lives would have been spared. Sort of a... uh, uh, microcosm of, of judgment. You, you know, you, you see the truth. You either convert or judgment. Of course, because Elijah then had the people slay the false prophets, which uh, ended up being a contract out on his life. Well, not really a contract, but an edict. Anyway, the God who answers by fire, the tongue, again, distinctly human. The fire is completely divine. God working with with people. Both can be hijacked in this sense. Heresy. A person uses the tongue to to spread their heresy. False fire. Nadab and Abihu. Beginning of a lesson there in the book of Leviticus chapter 10. There can be those who say, I felt such a heat on my heart, I know it was the Spirit, and be totally off base from Scripture. Well, you go follow your heart, and when you die, you can go answer to your chest. As for me, I want what the Lord wants, and it takes everything I've got to come close, and without His mercy, I'd never make it. God was not in the wind with Elijah. When Elijah does run from you know, the the death threats, and he finally gets to the wilderness and he's hiding, and and, and God is ministering to Elijah on one hand, he's correcting him on another hand. So he's, it's it's almost cute. I wouldn't want to trade places cute with Elijah, but uh, it was almost, in this sense, God says, all right, I'm going to pass by, and of course it was uh, the wind, and God was not in the wind, it was the earthquake, and God was not in the earthquake, and the fire, and God was not in the fire, that still, small voice. And then God, of course, after getting Elijah's head back in the game, he says, <clears throat> now that's what God did. I'm not clearing my throat. Actually, I'm doing both. Uh, Elijah, by the way, you said I, you were the only one following me. Well, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. And so this is quite, uh, God does it later down in the, in the interaction. He doesn't get to it right away. I would have been impatient. I would have wanted to get that right away. Uh, anyway, this um, back to this our story this morning from the book of Acts, which should have everything to do with life for us. It's not um, an, an entertaining story. It's the, it could be. It's, it can be entertaining. It is a story, but it is true and it is available, albeit not uh, as sensational. Necessarily. So these emblems of the tongue divided, the tongues divided, and the fire, supernatural indicators of divine activity. Just God supernaturally saying, I'm here, and you cannot duplicate this. You cannot leave where you are and go home and show your children, let me show you what happened to me today, and the tongues of fire reappear over your head, and it's not going to happen. This is peculiar to this moment. The wind that first announced the coming of the Spirit, the wind pushes and the fire purges. These things belong to the emblem. If you take wind in the form of oxygen, and you take fire in the form of acetylene, for example, or propane, and you you regulate them together, you and you push them out together, you have a torch. I mean, the thing will burn over 5,000 degrees, hot. And that's what you use to cut steel. And, and so looking at this, you know, the wind and the fire, you've got a lot of heat. And this is intentional. I want the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want the fire, and I want him to use my mouth. Uh, and James, of course, goes the other direction, warning about the, the, the tongue being hijacked, as I mentioned earlier. And how easy it is for, Christian, for good Christian people to mess up everything with a snide or snarky little comment. And it happens too much, uh, I'm told. I've never done it myself, but I've heard about you people messing up. Anyway, isn't that? That's how it would be if angels were entrusted with the gospel, right? But sinners are entrusted with the gospel, and so we are in it together. And largely, we go through life spiritually feeling alone a lot of times. Feeling that God is, you know, never leave me nor forsake me, but he must be way down the block, because I don't sense his presence. And yet by faith we overcome hell. Without this fire. The preaching would be man-made. That's the connection between the tongue and the fire. Without the fire. The tongue is just the tongue. There's nothing more to it. But with this fire. Uh, this is something special. And so much so. When God wanted to grab Moses' attention the first time there on Mount Sinai, or Sinai if you pronounce, prefer that pronunciation, he engulfed a bush with a flame and did not destroy the bush. And fire is often used to depict the Holy Presence and his purifying work. Now, we know Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this is Isaiah. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah was king for 55, 52 years. I might be off a little bit. One or two. It's not a five or two. It's two. Can I get, can I get three? <laughs> All right. Well, it's 52 years. And uh, he was a good king. And he died. And that left a void in the heart of the prophet and the kingdom. And at that time, God manifests himself to the prophet Isaiah. And he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, trained of his robe. We, we know the story. And then God says, who shall I send? I want to volunteer to send out to preach. And Isaiah raises his hand. And I encourage you, don't that the world's thing is don't ever volunteer. That is not God's thing. Our God volunteered to come here for us. And he expects us to volunteer to be used by him based on what he did by coming here. I say, okay, when are you going to get to Isaiah 6 right now? Then, after he says, I'll go, <laughs> this is how you treat a pastor. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live cold. I would have been a little nervous at this point, hoping he'd stop on time, for instance. Anyway, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. Now, now, he's, now if he can't touch them, what's he doing putting them on my lips? See, you know, these little things in the scripture, Right. He had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it. and said, behold, this, is, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So we're talking about fire as the emblem uh, also for purging and <clears> that purifying work of God. Here the prophet Isaiah, his mouth, his lips, the tongue, the whole thing is being dealt with by God using a seraphim in Isaiah's vision, prepping him for ministry. And then God sends him out to preach. And his message is not a happy, seeker-friendly message. And, and you know, my point is this, it is not seeker-friendly to withhold the entire gospel from people. It is not seeker-friendly to skirt around telling people, you're, you're a sinner. And if you don't fix it, you're going to go to hell. And the only way you can fix it is by accepting the fix. And this is the good news. And the bad news is that uh, if you opt out, well, then God will lock you out. And that's not what we want. So, um, and back to this. It says here in verse 3, we're almost done here, and i got a bunch of ways to go. I'll fix this. And one sat on each of them. None were missed. None were left out. We cannot have all the gifts, but we can have all the grace, and we can have it flow through us. But if you want grace to flow through you, get this straight. You're going to have to face who you are and who you are not, and you're going to have to face who God is and let him be God. It's going to take work. Nobody is just, well, you know, that's just a disposition. No, it's not. This is a spiritual thing. Grace is not carnal. It is not natural. Not this grace. This is spiritual grace. This is balance in the faith. This is the the platform, the launch pad for all the virtues. Uh, It's not the only one. I mean, you know, there's other ingredients like faith and truth and love. And even hope. Because hope, without hope... When we fail what would we hope in to recover from or how to recover this is a new experience for these apostles what they're what's going on here they are being see if i so so when you're preaching the gospel to unbelievers you can say they were baptized in the spirit and you probably lost them but if you say they were immersed in the spirit that's what baptism means you're immersing someone it's it's not a trickle this is why John, whenever we see him baptizing, there's a lot of water there. It's when the Ethiopian e- eunuch said to Philip that hey, there's water. What stops us? And they went down into the water. Um, there are exceptions. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't want to baptize an Eskimo in a you know a fishing hole through the ice. That would be bad. Uh, someone that's sick. Uh, there are exceptions because it's just, it's a symbol, a symbol. Symbol's an emblem that has had a child with symbol. Anyway. <laughs> uh, this, uh, <laughs> now, if you laugh, you're going to have to even laugh at other jokes too. We, we need, you know don't just take the ones you like, fake it if you have to. Anyway, it makes me feel good about myself. The mission that the apostles had is the mission that we have theirs and ours in the world is to make Jesus known by the tongue I mean you don't mime the gospel you shouldn't mime anything. miming should be outlawed okay. they just won't mime their own business any anyway, the, the 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 tongue of praise, the tongue of prayer, the tongue of scripture, the tongue of sense now i I believe. We want our students to get A. We want them to be A students, but not if they're going to be A students without sense. We don't need that. We don't need a a bunch of smart, dumb people. We need them to be smart and sensible at the same time. And when that doesn't happen, you get this current administration and several of the others that we've just had. Uh, That is not political. That is fact. It's just, boy, nobody can be that stupid and that smart at the same time and expect to be applauded. Anyway, supercharged by truth and love, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, people have the capacity to be filled with God's Spirit to the point of overflow, to be immersed in the Spirit of God. They were already believers. We don't have time to go to John chapter 20, verses uh, 21 and to 23. We don't have time to go there where Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Then he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And, and this is, uh, they were already saved. But yet they had to have this third experience with the Holy Spirit. The first one was being drawn to Christ, the second one was being recipients of the Spirit. And the third experience is now to overflow. I baptize you with water unto repentance, John said. But he who is coming after me is mighty, and I, mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and fire. See, we get a little numb when we hear these Christian words too many times. He will baptize you. He will immerse you. And, and that's what we want. Uh, it is the promise of the Father. It is given not to show off, but to witness Christ. We have to run through these. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be witnesses to me. John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Helper, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. It's very centered on Christ. John sixteen thirteen. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. This is the Godhead in operation. We could stay on that. We can show you uh, how the, the Spirit and the Father and the Son are all doing the same things from the Scripture, but that's not where we are. And so the early days of the apostles, characterized by miracles, this is one of them. We cannot all perform miracles, but we can all speak the truth. We can all speak the truth in Christ. We can all be immersed in the Spirit of God and have this witness, where we glorify, we testify, and we speak not on our authority, but on his. And if the Holy Spirit takes that position, how much more for us. And he began to speak with other tongues, it says. And began to speak with other tongues. Not by the force of the word, the sword, but of the tongue, the word. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Islam is spread with the sword and it is maintained the same way. That's just how it is. It's not, it's not a disparaging statement Uh, for them, they'd be honored to hear this. Loyalty to Islam is forced under the threat of death. Whereas Christianity, loyalty to Christ, is maintained by spiritual truth, faith, and love. Here it is maintained, Peter said, speaking of believers who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. We are kept not at gunpoint, but by the power of God for salvation and the tongue is for speaking the truth the mission of the church and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth John 4 24 and the spirit gave them utterance that means the ability at the bottom of verse 4 uh, what God given and God driven Paul was perplexed at the Gentile the Galatians he says having begun in the spirit are you now being made perfect in the flesh what's your problem we see this happen all the time in the church. Trusting God, God blessing them. Then all of a sudden, God's put out of the way and gimmicks are brought in. We've got to get the people in the church. Not my job. That is, the, that is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring people into a church and to push them out. And and it is not a human thing. Uh, so, verse 5. We're almost done. I know. that. You know, okay, I'm ready. It's a lot of information, Pastor. And I've been ready. <laughs> verse 5 was ready when I pulled up. Uh, and there d- were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, this is the mandatory feast. The men were migrating onto Jerusalem, uh, in the temple, devout men. They were serious about their faith from every nation under heaven. The diaspora, when the Jews uh, were brought into Babylonian exile over 500 years before these events, uh, <clears throat> once they were emancipated, Many of them decided not to go back to Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah, when they go back to Jerusalem, they don't have a lot of people with them. A lot of the Jews had become very uh, competent. in the commercial skills. And they spread throughout the Gentile world. And they built for themselves an uno- unofficial commercial empire, uh, financial successes. Well, they were still devout. And they were still, when the temple was... Rebuilt, they would come to Jerusalem. And that's what we're reading about. Verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the multitudes came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So God used a sound to draw the multitude. uh, The wind of verse 2, he's not referring to they heard them speaking in tongues. They heard the wind. That's what stirred them. The apostles were already in a mode of prayer and uh, praise. Uh, again, events moving fast, faster than how they're narrated to us. And we're confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Bottom of verse 6. God <clears throat> does not need software to overrule language barriers. Verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Um yeah, the Galileans were considered hillbillies by many of the Jews, especially the Jerusalem type. Uh, Peter, you know, your, your Galilean accent betrays you. They, they could pick it up, and they thought you're one of them. The gospel message it um, it amuses unbelievers unto salvation. If we, you know, it is very possible for that. Anyway, the cosmopolitan Jews noticing that these unsophisticated Jews were speaking very sophisticatedly. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Uh, again, that Galilean dialect, they're understanding them in the Persian language, for example. Oh, I guess that's Farsi. Uh, I don't know. Some dialect thereof. For millennium. if If God had anything to say, he said it to a Jew. If God spoke to men, he spoke in Hebrew mostly, almost entirely. Beginning on this day at Pentecost, God begins to speak in Gentile languages. God is about reaching Gentiles and Jews. Uh, So for the past 2,000 years or, or more, if a Jew mostly wants to know about the glorious God of the New Testament and Old Testament... As a rule, they must go to a Gentile or use Gentile materials. That's going to change. When the two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11 come and 144, that's all going to go back to the Jews. God knows what he's doing. This is not anti-Semitic and it's not pro or anti-Gentile. This, this is, it's, the story is there. Verse 9, Parthians, uh, that would be Persians, Iran, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, modern-day Turkey. Elamites, were southwestern Iran. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, verse 10, parts of Libya. Uh, these sections here, west of Egypt, uh, proselytes. Those are Gentile converts to Judaism. Some will be converted to Christ, who have another step, such as the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues, wonderful works of God. The uh, different tongues given to the church in this sense, different from the tongues given later, Uh, this is interpretation. They're speaking, they're Galilean speaking, but people are hearing them in their language. It is a miracle uh, through the tongue. Uh, We don't have time to get in so much more. Maybe I can work it in the next session Cretans and Arabs from Crete, the Arabs are surrounding areas such as Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Jews coming from these places to Jerusalem. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. Not one incident in scripture is instruction given to man from God through tongues. Tongues is exclusive to man addressing God and and uh, and and it is praise. It is not a teaching. So for someone to stand up and speak in tongues, and then someone to give an interpretation and say, "Thus saith the Lord," that that, that that is wrong. It is always praise, and it does not overrule rudely another gift. So if the gift of teaching is in operation, the the gift of tongues does not butt in and interrupt uh, what is being taught. Did I say that with a little attitude? Because I feel it. All right. <laughs> I remember a church man, the guy would get up the same time every Sunday and interrupt. People are still wondering what's happened, what happened to that guy. I'm not telling you. But anyway, <laughs> verse 12. <laughs> so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Do the, the, the non-Christians even ask the church anymore what's going on? What does it mean? Or are we too lukewarm about our faith? Is there something missing where we're not exciting them? I'm leaving out a lot of stuff. And it's your fault because you've got places to go. Verse 13. <laughs> Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Well, there's the world's theories and philosophies. Their guesswork about spiritual things is always wrong. They can build empires. They can do phenomenal things. With carnal things, but spiritual things, it's the difference between natural speculation and divine revelation. You either are guessing about God, and like this guy, you're going to be wrong, or it's going to be revealed to you through the Holy Spirit once you are born again. Well, that's all the time we have except to say uh, Peter will preach with an anointed tongue next verse and deal with this, this remark. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you. Would have been amazing to have a video on these things to be able to watch it happen, but in your infinite and and precious wisdom, you knew that this would be sufficient and it has been for over 2000 years. The church has been taking the Old Testament, the New Testament, has been speaking the truth and saving souls. And may you continue to empower us, do fresh work in us and through us. Help us to be gracious and forgiving and not petty so that we could be more more like Christ, more effective. If you are listening online or if you are here in the church, You've never opened your heart to Christ. You're blocked out, and it's your choice. But you can get in. There is a way that leads to the throne of heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ and nowhere else. No matter what the world says, there's only one way for salvation, and that's through the one that died in your place as you to take your sin upon himself, your punishment, my punishment. If you come to Christ, if you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I admit it. I ask you to forgive me. I've broken your laws, and I come to you, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And from this day forward, be the one that has saved my soul. And from this day forward, be the one that lords over my life, because I give it to you. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, when invited to share it with one of the pastors, may they not back down.